1: Hey everybody, how y'all doing? We have Alex with us. We have Arib, and myself. So hello everybody, and and,
0: and we have Wayne Dorban.
1: Oh wow. Wayne, hello.
0: <laughs> <He's> <laughs> we are live. <laughs> yeah.
1: We are live and recording. Wayne, um, and 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 this session started recording automatically. I think there is there was a change with the GoToWebinar platform. As soon as I started the broadcast, it started to record. Uh, So Ah. we are recording Ah, and live. Yep. All right. Uh, Very cool. cool. (laughs) All right, Wayne. uh, How are you? And how how are you, Alex? And everybody else?
0: Well, I am great. I'm gonna let Alex talk here in just a second. I um um I'm excited. This is gonna be an amazing series that we have, and we call them series, but it's really a course. Alex, over the next number of weeks, he's gonna be teaching us about what he's doing on. his, in his life, as it relates to holistic, energy efficient, these are my words, farming and, and living and just doing stuff that's, boy, if, if any of us or all of us can copy just a little bit of it, we're going to make this world a better place. And um, I just want to do one quick little introduction. I put a little deal out there on an email that some of you may or may not take advantage of. I'm not going to give you any more hint than that. And uh, if you read the email, you know it. And by the way, everybody that's in our community got the email. You might want to look back. I'm not going to say anything more about it because it's a little bit of a special prize for, for some of you. And you might want to look at that. Anyway, um, Alexis is going to take over here in a minute. I think Mark and Ariba have been working with him, putting his presentation together. He's actually... Uh, trying to get his new laptop set up on our system. And I don't think he got it done. So he's actually speaking from the same place that he spoke with us from when he did his special presentation with us a number of weeks ago. But I got to tell you, I'm not going to be able to be on this live the whole time because I'm actually a speaker at this hemp conference. And I'm going to be doing a bunch of Facebook live sessions from this conference, everybody. So we'll, those will be put onto both the Eat Free and the and the Eat Elite um, Facebook pages. And this is the largest hemp conference in the world. And if you can think of somebody who's an expert in cannabis, they're probably here. And if you'd like me to meet with somebody, you might just put something in the chat or send me a email. And over the next couple of days, I'll try to see if I can get with them and ask them your question. So uh, I'm going to turn this over to Alexis and Mark and Areeb. And um, just thank you guys so much, and more than anything, thank Alexis for taking his time. It, it is not easy, everybody, to put these these series and these courses together. For every hour that Alexis is on online live, my guess is he's put 20 or 30 hours into getting prepped for it. And I don't mean just specifically, but maybe even hundreds of hours as, as it to the topic, because he's an expert, and we don't let anybody talk on our network that isn't an expert, and Alexis certainly is. So with no further ado, here is Mark, and Alexis, and Areeb.
2: Pleased to be here. So should I begin with the presentation?
1: Yes, Alexis, I think, I think um, it's a good time to start uh, beginning with the presentation. And everybody already know you from the previous uh, Presentation that you did that was awesome. So everybody is eager to learn more. So let's get into it right away
2: All right, fair enough uh, So my name is Alexis Ziegler um, I live at Living Energy Farm uh, Living Energy Farm is a community uh, designed to run without fossil fuel um, in Louisa, Virginia United States and um, uh, the presentation we're going to talk today about uh, the, asking the right questions, basically. Uh, I have built a number of uh, conventional as well as, as off grid buildings. I built a, a, quite a number of renewable energy systems and have a fair amount of experience um, uh, with organizing around uh, various environmental issues. I published a book called Integrated Activism, uh, which you can find online. Um, I see my role uh as uh an organizer and to basically just to, to speaking the hard truths. Uh I think a lot of people out there, well, they make their own choices, but they often make compromises uh, to say what's easy instead of saying what's true. Uh, I see my role as to saying what I understand to be true. Um, so uh, maybe that uh makes it more difficult in some ways. Um, but uh or uh, it's it's harder to win friends that way, uh, but in any case, uh, I think it's really important uh, because th- we are facing a climate crisis. There are that's really one piece of a of a, a bigger set of issues surrounding the fact that human beings uh, our population has grown, our environmental impact has grown tremendously, um, and we're having uh, enormous impacts on the planet around us uh, with species extinction, climate change, uh, food issues, social equality. Uh, To me, it's all one big picture. Uh, And uh, I think we can address these issues. uh, But uh, what we can't do or what's happening, uh, particularly in the United States, and I think it's true globally, is that the politics are causing us to ignore the laws of physics. The laws of physics don't care about our opinions. They don't care about how we vote. They don't care who's president or prime minister. The laws of physics are what they are. Um, And the laws of physics impact climate change. They impact how things change. So we can't imagine away these big problems. They're embedded in the physical world. Um, But uh, unfortunately, our politics often ignore those laws of physics. So the question, my approach then, is to try to answer the hard questions as soberly, as honestly as possible. Answer the right questions, figure out which questions are actually important. Uh, because we can, you can fill libraries with with brilliant answers to stupid questions, and you don't get yourself anywhere. Uh, or, or that's the more political approach. So we're trying to take uh, the most sober approach, uh, particularly around renewable energy issues. Um, so, uh, so when we talk about sustainable uh, living uh, at Living Energy Farm, we have built a small community. We use a lot of solar energy, uh, and people often come out there and they do a tour and they say, hey. I want to adopt your, uh, your solar energy systems, and, I, and the first thing I say is don't do that. Uh, the first thing you need to do is, is think about how those solar energy tools uh, fit in with the bigger picture of how you're living uh, and how your community is organized. Um, uh, grid-tie solar, uh, these are two grid-tie solar racks. If you're viewing my screen uh, that you can see, uh, the one on the left is a 30-kilowatt uh, solar rack, that little red thing. Uh, I don't know if you can see the my mouse cursor right there, that little red thing in that picture, that's a human being. That's a fairly large rack. Now, some of the larger uh, uh, grid tie residential solar racks uh, might be as big as 10 kilowatts. 10 kilowatts is quite a bit. Uh, but 10 kilowatts is about what it takes to run a residential furnace. Uh, in, in Virginia, we have cloudy weather, we have sunny weather. If you take it as a year-round average, we get about 3.8 or four hours uh, average daily full sun. So, in other words, that big rack, which is quite large, could run a daily fir- could run a furnace uh, for four hours a day. Now, your average home in the Western world in a cold climate is not all that well insulated. It's inhabited by one or two people. Uh, if you only ran your uh, furnace for four hours and then left it off for twenty hours, uh, your house would probably reach life threatening temperatures in the depths of winter. In the depths of winter. Um, uh, So the the grid ties solar by itself, uh, it's only good for when the sun's out. Uh, Now, uh, Sierra Club and various other environmental organizations, they may be well-intentioned, but they're playing this game of trying to replace uh, uh, political ambitions with the laws of physics. You can't do that. They're encouraging people to build all-electric homes as if we could take that 10-kilowatt rack. Well, if we want you uh, uh, to run a furnace around the clock or even even, – halfway around the clock. You'd have to build, you know, three or four more of those. Uh, But then you've got a cloudy day. Uh, You only get about 10% output out of a a photovoltaic panel Uh, in cloudy weather. You're looking at maybe 30 of these 10 kilowatt racks to keep one home warm. Uh, Then you've got many thousands of dollars in electrical storage. So the idea of the all-electric home powered with renewable energy uh, is really egregiously uh, disconnected from the laws of physics from the real world. Uh, and that's unfortunate because what's happening is because of these political aspirations of various uh, environmental groups, uh, a lot of smart people are making stupid uh, decisions. And when smart people do that it's it's uh it's not an accident. it's really political ambition that leads us in that direction. Uh, I think what's happening is we're dealing with an addiction model that our food system, our energy systems, a lot of these things uh, we've gotten addicted to them. They're very powerful, they're very comforting. Uh, George W. Bush, as you, some of you may remember, the conservative president um, from the United States, uh, made the comment that we are addicted to oil. And this is a Texas oil man making that comment. So, if you're talking about taking grid tie electricity, now that uh, picture on the lower right on this same page, that's just an ordinary house with some PV panels added to it. Didn't add any insulation, didn't change out any of the appliances, didn't move in any more people or change how the house is used, just put some grid tie solar panels on the roof. Well, if you're looking at it from an addiction model, you're talking about just uh, giving more beer to an alcoholic. We're already addicted to energy. The environmental footprint of solar panels is quite high. Uh, uh, so you can't you can't beat an addiction. You can't beat alcoholism by adding more alcohol. You've got to take a different approach. So what we're trying to do is figuring out uh, how to take that different approach. Um, and if I can get my computer to cooperate here. Come on, computer, give me the next page. There we go, we'll do it that way. Um, when you take an, uh, an argument to its extreme, it becomes more apparent. This uh, veggie, and, uh, veggie oil-powered Hummer seems to make it into a lot of my presentations. Uh, why do we focus on renewable energy uh, so much? Why do we focus on energy production? Uh, here we have the hydrogen and veggie oil-powered Stretch Hummer. Now, Stretch Hummer is obviously a fairly absurd uh, vehicle. Uh, you know, only the, rich, the quite a wealthy person could afford that uh, or afford to power it but somehow uh, the person who owned that Hummer had the idea that they could put veggie oil in the engine and morally purify it. Uh, We do that specifically because uh, the focus on the windmill on the mountaintop, the solar panels on the roof, the veggie oil stretch Hummer, it it allows us to ignore the the consumerist society. It allows us to ignore ignore the fact that economic growth uh, is uh, is itself a huge, uh, unstoppable, ecologically destructive practice In the United States in particular, uh, employment, uh, uh, keeping the entire uh, economy running requires an enormous amount of consumerist behavior. People have to shop, 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 and keep shopping. And by focusing on so-called renewable energy production, we can ignore that fact. There's been several books written about this question. Uh, Ozzy Zenner, Green Illusions is a great book. Uh, Ted Trainer, based out of Australia, he's written several books, uh, renewable energy cannot sustain a consumer society. And of course, my book, Integrated Activism, is not uh, about uh, renewable energy specifically, but puts renewable energy in the broader context of human cultural evolution. Um, The food system is another addictive process. Now, I don't know uh, about the rest of the world. In the United States, we have quite a bit of debate these days about uh, what's a good diet. Some people think that eating uh, more meat, uh, grass-fed meat, lots of dairy, uh, these sorts of foods, uh, somehow is, uh, represents what hunter-gatherers, uh, ate, which is of course not true, but in any case, a lot of people want to believe that. Um, uh, if you want to know, if you look at the record of hunter-gatherers, uh, humans are the consummate omnivores and given that acorns run, uh, don't run away from you and uh, squirrels do, we've always eaten more plants. They don't run away from you, but at a very basic level, uh, uh, the American diet, if you, uh, Lester Brown generated this number. Uh, he, by the way, is a, uh, agricultural, an environmentalist and an agricultural, he studies agricultural issues for a long time. He predicted that China would start importing grain uh, long before they did. This was back in the 1980s 90s. and 90s. The Chinese government, very uh, by the way, got very angry at him when he came out with this prediction. But he's looked at agricultural issues for a long, long time. And he pointed out that if everybody in the world started eating like Americans do, basically eating a, eating a meat-based diet, a grass-fed beef or grain-fed beef, only about two and a half billion people uh people could uh, survive on that diet. It basically means the other 5 billion people on the planet would just have to go away. There's no food for them if everybody tries to eat the way Americans do. Um, so again, this focus on grass-fed beef, uh, 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 the solar panels on the roof, putting biofuel in your oversized car, As long as you're focusing on the production side of the question, you don't have to focus on the social equality side of the question or the real environmental impacts uh, of your own behavior. Um, So that's the wrong set of questions to ask. The right set of questions to ask. um, The house I'm in is actually the picture you're looking at on the screen now, assuming you're looking at my screen, uh, is the outside of the house which I'm sitting in right now. This was a house I built back in the 1990s, early 2000s. It's a solar heated straw bale cooperative house. Um, and when I crunched the numbers on this house, I was actually quite surprised. Uh, people living in this house use uh, 9% as much energy as the average American, uh, 9% uh, residential energy. That doesn't count what they do outside of the house. Um, if you're trying to uh, really save energy, if you're trying to, to really make a difference, um, the thing that really works uh, is... Uh, to look at context, uh, conservation and renewable energy. This is what I'm saying when people come out to Living Energy Farm and say, I want to do your solar heating system, and I say, don't do that. Where's your context? Uh, even if you're going to stay in your own home, you're not going to live in a cooperative situation, uh, the really important issue is is conservation. Um, so what makes this house work in particular, it is a straw bale solar heated cooperative house. It is not a single family house. There, uh, There are a number of people living in this house sharing the space. So you get one thermal shell wrapped around a cooperatively shared house. That shell is a straw bale shell. Uh, Straw bale walls don't cost any more to build uh, than ordinary walls, uh, but they're 18 inches thick instead of uh, of three or four inches thick. Uh, So the context is where is the thing that you're building? How does it relate to uh, the things that you need to use? If you have a house on a mountaintop, and you're driving an hour to go pick your kids up from school, uh, if you're driving another hour to go shopping, it's the wrong thing in the wrong place. Um, the second big issue is conservation. A dollar spent on conservation is gonna save you $100 spent on renewable energy production. Uh, so this house has 18 inch thick walls, it has uh, you know, people using it cooperatively. When you bring those two things together, you bring your energy demand really, really uh, way down. You reduce your energy tremendously. And once you've reduced your energy that much, then renewable energy becomes a very powerful uh, form of energy. And when you start just trying to throw renewable energy at the industrial systems that we have out there, um, it doesn't work. Uh, the industrial systems right now all over the world, there are all these industrial machines, compressors running, refrigeration systems, uh, heating systems running, blowing, blower systems running in these, uh, you know, major commercial buildings. And I've done a fair amount of work. I've worked as a mechanic in my life quite a bit. Uh, These systems are heavy power users. They use a lot of energy, and they're built in buildings that need a lot of energy. And it all goes back to the late 1800s when uh, electricity first became, they started sending electricity down the wire. At that point, uh, the only electrical source they had, reliable electric source that they had, uh, were steam boilers. So in the 1890s, they built steam boilers to generate, er, generate electricity, Uh, With a steam boiler, the bigger the better in terms of efficiency. Uh, You spend a lot of money to build a really big boiler. Uh, DC electricity doesn't go down a wire very well. High voltage AC, you can ship it miles and miles and miles down the wire. Uh, So based on that history of how the technologies came to us, we developed a centralized uh, electrical generation system based on high voltage AC power going down a wire. Uh, One of the the big problem with that is all the capital investment in that setup is at the power plant. Uh, So you've got these big expensive generators, you've got all this crazy expensive equipment, and then you've got thousands or millions of users, and each one of those users is contributing a little bit in terms of paying for that system. It effectively encourages uh, uh, wasteful behavior. Uh, And you can see how that's manifest in the United States in particular. Uh, In the 1940s, the average refrigerator in the U.S. was less efficient than the average refrigerator in the mid-1970s. The reason is because people buy cheap refrigerators and then don't think about the energy costs because they're only paying for the energy a little bit at a time. The big advantage we've learned with Living Energy Farm is breaking with the grid. We break that chain of addiction. We break that chain of inverse or uh, perverse uh, financial incentives that encourage people to waste. With a house like this that you're looking at, there's quite a bit of investment in the heating systems, in the insulation, uh, but there's a return on the investment. Uh, This house works quite well financially as well as uh, environmentally. Um, Now, this is the house on the mountaintop. This is the wrong context. Uh, We're going to assume this is a single family house. I don't actually know whose house it is. It's just a a picture I got off the web. Uh, But of course, most people look at that house and say, wow, it'd be great to live in that house. Uh, And then we add some solar panels to the roof and we can feel better about it. Um, Why do we so persistently get the context wrong? Why do we why do so many smart people get that wrong? Uh, What happens because we don't want to answer hard questions is we write them off to human nature. Uh, This whole question of of why there has been so much population growth, why we have uh, a runaway uh, industrial growth. uh, We just write it off to human nature. Oh, uh, humans. Oh, they just breed. Oh, humans. Oh, we're just selfish. Uh, anybody who studied any anthropo- anthropological history knows that that's just not true. Uh, most humans throughout most of history have not been selfish. Most hum- humans throughout most his- most of history have worked for the good of the group. This is how we evolved as intelligent social beings, in cooperative groups where we could interact with each other, we could judge each other's uh, moral uh, standing. Uh, this is how, this is what created us. Uh, at, human civilization as it's organized now, uh, we've uh, we've made the choice to build empires and that's exactly what it is. What uh, hiding behind human nature and hiding behind all these false solutions around adding renewable energy to our runaway systems, uh, it allows us to escape from the fact that we're making choices and we could make other choices. Uh, If we just say these things are natural, they're unavoidable, then we don't have to make a choice. If we say we're making choices and those choices are having tremendously destructive impacts on uh, people in other parts of the world or on people who are going to live in the future, then there becomes some moral obligation to make different choices. Uh, So that's the reason we get this context so wrong, is we don't want to face the fact that we have choices and that we can make those choices. We can make very different choices. Um, So let's look at some more uh, places where renewable energy works pretty well. Uh, This is uh, Twin Oaks uh, community in Virginia. It is a uh, uh, the largest secular income-sharing community in the United States. Uh, They do not focus specifically on renewable energy, but they have a really fantastic context. They have 100 people living on one piece of land. they built an economy that is uh, largely self-enclosed. In other words, nobody has to get into a car to drive to work. Uh, This building, I helped them build this building back in the 1990s. This building is partially off-grid. As you can see, uh, it's not straw bale, but it is well-insulated, and it's got some um, solar... Uh, renewable energy features added to it. Uh, so uh, they haven't worked quite as hard perhaps as we have uh, at conserving energy. They're running at about 20 percent residential per capita energy use. Um, uh, but 20 percent is not bad. I mean most of our environmental groups are saying we need to save 50 uh, percent in 50 years. So to have uh, these kind of numbers now at a re- at a moderate cost uh, is really quite remarkable. Uh, So uh, the the thing with because uh, because of these political issues and we want to focus on uh, people so much of the time want to focus on the energy side of it because uh, it allows us to not uh, focus on the consumerism side of it, uh, our focus again and again and again gets pulled back into that energy question. Where does it, you know, I want to put solar on my house. I want to put solar on my house. It really leads to some really silly decision making. This particular building is a shop. It's an auto shop that was built by some friends of mine. It was actually built back in the 1970s. It's been around a while. And if you look, again, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but you can see these, those are south-facing roofs. There's one there. That one's hidden behind a tree, but they're actually uh, focused south. It was a solar-designed building. Um, They built some solar heat collection systems up up there, and unfortunately they didn't do a a great job with the actual construction of those systems, uh, so they basically fell apart. Uh, But what's unfortunate about this building, you can see from the concrete parts of it down here, it's a cinder block building. Uh, So what they did, they put homemade solar hot water heater collectors up here. They ran plumbing through the walls. There's some big uh, hot water storage tanks under the floor and then pipes running in circles all around and around and around in the floor. Many, many thousands of dollars to build this elaborate solar heating system and they did not insulate the walls. Um, This may sound silly, and I'm making it sound silly, but this is the norm. This is what we do. This is the same thing as putting uh, grid-tie solar panels on the roof of an ordinary house. This is sort of the normal way we think about it as we think about the energy side of it instead of the context and the conservation. We almost always get the context wrong because we have a lot of us have personal investments. We have a house on the mountaintop, and we don't want to admit that it's the wrong thing in the wrong place, um, in this case, they got the context great. This is this is actually another building at Twin Oaks, so it's fantastic context. Uh, when you work in this shop, the people get up out of bed, eat breakfast, and walk to this shop. Nobody has to drive. Uh, the systems are all fantastically integrated. Uh, I've worked in this shop quite a bit actually. When a machine breaks down, we can take it apart. We can, like an old lawnmower, runs out of uh, runs out of steam. We take the bolts uh, apart from the lawnmower. We put them in the bolt bins. Uh, and those bolts sit there, and five years later, you might pull that same set of bolts out and put them on a tractor. The context is fantastic. This is what I learned uh, being involved with communities, is there's this integration of systems where uh, the machines and the, and the materials and the parts all support each other. It's kind of a modern modern uh, uh, industrialization of, of traditional village life. So the context on this building is fantastic. It's the right thing in the right place. And it still didn't work because they spent – I'm going to make up a number, but twenty or $30,000 on all of this solar heat and $5,000 worth of insulation, and it would have been a fantastically warm and comfortable building as it is it's cold and miserable because they didn't spend the money on insulation. So you've got to get it right. You, if you're serious, if you care about the laws of physics, if you're willing to put the laws of physics ahead of personal profit or uh, political gain, you have to uh, understand that context is important, what you're building where, and that Insulation is more important than energy production. If you get those two things right, uh, this is another community that's very similar to, uh, in some ways similar to Living Energy Farm, in some ways similar to that first cooperative house I showed you. Uh, This is called Dancing Rabbit. It's another community in Missouri. Uh, They run about 10 percent per capita energy use, and that for them that's total energy use, not just residential. Uh, They have a mix of shared of cooperative buildings and some private homesteads, the cooperative buildings are much more efficient. This particular building you see in the picture is their shared community house. Uh, The one that's kind of off to the left a bit is actually a a cooperative residential uh, structure. Uh, So you'll notice we're going down this list and we're seeing uh, the range from 9% to 20% uh, energy use in one community after another. Um, uh, What was really interesting to me, uh, at one point, I Whoops, we're going backwards. Don't go that way. Um, come on, computer. Sorry, I'm new to this computer. Woo! There we go. We got it. Ha! All right. <laughs> so, um, so we, we're looking at energy use, uh, and we've looked at the lifestyles of hundreds of people at this point living in these various communities. Um, they're all cooperative, cooperative organizations. Um, at one point, uh, I got my environmental uh, activist friends, and I've got all these young liberal. People are trying to make a difference in the world, uh, and I said, you know, send me your energy bills. And I took three years as a basis because most people don't keep their bills much longer than that. So I got their electric bills and their gas bills and all of this, and I did it for a bunch of my friends, and I added them up, and the difference was shocking. I just showed you a number of examples of people living between nine and twenty percent average energy use. People living—I'm talking about environmental liberals in the United States, people who try to save energy. Um, their average energy bills ran from 80% to 140% with the average of the average at about 120%. And you say, now, wait a minute. Why is somebody who's trying to save energy, uh, the average person, we're going to say, trying to save energy in the United States, burning 120% as much energy, uh, burning 20% more than the average American? Well, this slide you have up in front of you is the answer. Uh, so the bottom big blue square, that represents people in New York and Chicago who live in apartments. Uh, the people, the American dream is a freestanding home. I was just in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia the other day doing a television show, oddly enough, and driving down the street. There's all these big houses and there's literally only a foot between the houses. These are houses in the city and all they have to do is close in that foot. Uh, you know, make the houses into the structures that share a wall and you would reduce in this case, you take those four squares and make it into a big square. And, again, this is simple geometry, simply the laws of physics. You reduce the exterior wall area by 50%. And now, if you can uh, – now, in a climate where you're having to heat the building or cool the building, we live in a climate that gets both hot in the, hot in the summer and cold in the winter, you're talking about a 50% reduction in the amount of, air, of, of heat loss area going, going out of those walls just by the way things are laid out. And this is the reason your average American environmentalist is running uh, above average in terms of energy consumption. All right, now let's talk about Living Energy Farm uh, in particular. Uh, This is a picture of our main uh, central structures. We tried uh, thinking to to maximize uh, the advantages of context uh, and conservation, and then to try to see, all right, if we can do this really, really well, uh, can we live on nothing but renewable energy and can we do it at a modest, modest level? There's a lot of so-called carbon neutral homes out there built by rich people um, that uh, are not really carbon neutral. Uh, the, the depreciation, if you want to call it that, or the, the resources that go into building really big spacious homes have an environmental footprint that stretches out for decades and centuries. Uh, this, uh, We're trying to be realistic about this. And the numbers get complicated and, or uh, slippery, interpretive, however you want to say it. But I believe it is true that these, this community you're looking at in this picture uh, is operating, is supporting its membership, not only at a residential level, but also supporting us economically. We're earning our living uh, at uh, the per capita global renewable energy supply level. In other words, let me say that a little more clearly. If you take the global supply of energy, about 13% of that energy is coming from renewable sources. Now, some of those sources may or may not be fully renewable, but if you take that number and divide it by seven and a half billion people, you get the global per capita, existing global per capita renewable energy supply. The people living at it, living energy farm are already uh, below that energy use level. So, I think we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, So, we've got, uh, this is uh, shared community housing, so there are uh, several families can live in that building uh, Right now, we have two families as well as a host of interns, and we bring in students and whatnot, so you've got one thermal shell uh, wrapped around uh, a number of, of, uh, it's as if you put several houses together. It's a straw bale uh, building, so we have 18-inch thick walls, Um, so we brought our energy demand really, really way down. Now, just what's happening, interestingly, in the last few days, yesterday we had a really sunny day. Today is a moderately cloudy day, Uh, and then tomorrow we're expecting cold and snow. Uh, and the day after that's going to be cold too. We will not need any auxiliary heat uh, in that house uh, through this weekend. It will stay perfectly warm uh, uh, for days and days. Uh, The solar heat is collected in these solar panels up the middle of the house uh, and then is blown under the floor. Uh, Basically what we've developed uh, is a a good context. We don't have to commute to work. This building is where we can work on the property. Uh, We can run the farm. We have a, a shop set up where we can Uh, fix our own machines. Uh, We have, we're going to talk a bunch. I don't want to go too far into it on this webinar, because we're going to do a a different webinar where we go through and look at uh, solar energy, uh, how we use it at Living Energy Farm, because it's very different than how other communities use it. Uh, We have a whole daylight drive system, we call it, uh, where we uh, use uh, solar electricity during the day when the sun's out. Uh, So what's happening right now as we speak, uh, there's some PV panels. They're actually back behind that uh, building in the rear that are running high-voltage DC motors to pull heat off this central uh, solar hot air collector and shove it under the floor, what that becomes is a thermal battery, a daylight-driven thermal battery. So a little bit of precious electricity electricity is capturing a huge amount of heat and storing that heat in a thermal battery. The same thing is happening over here with these solar hot water panels. That tiny little PV panel up there beside that solar hot water panel is uh, running a tiny little pump that pulls hot water from those panels down to a storage tank. And if it, even if it's uh, stone cold cloudy for the next four days, four days from now, the, the heat will still be in those tanks and I can take a hot shower with solar pumped water. And our solar pump is another daylight drive pump so that uh, it'll run even in cloudy weather, but certainly in sunny weather, we can charge up our uh, our storage tanks. So I get to take a hot shower uh, anytime I want. Um, We have brought our energy use down to about 200 watts per person total energy use. Uh, 200 watts allows us to keep the buildings warm. I can surf the internet anytime I want. I can stay up and watch movies if I want to. I can keep the lights on. Uh, If I turn the lights on 24-7 and left them, at some point I would drain the batteries. We're going to do another webinar on good batteries. Uh, Unfortunately, what has destroyed the off-grid movement is crappy batteries. What we have at at Living Energy Farm are good batteries. They're called Nickel Iron. We're going to do a whole webinar just on batteries. Uh, But I can take a hot shower. I can drink cold lemonade. I could drink cold beer if I wanted to, except I don't like beer. Uh, You know, uh, we earn our living. We run a farm. uh, We process seeds uh, from that farm. We have uh, seed blowers and dryers, different kind of commercial scale equipment that we run uh, to process our seeds, to earn our living, all on about 200 watts per person because we worked really hard to tie these renewable energy systems together um, uh, to bring, to do really good insulation so we don't need as much energy, and then we can meet our energy demands uh, with a modest amount of energy. Now what this picture is, is the exact same th- thing you were looking at uh, before, except it's it's the satellite view. Uh, and I got this picture so you could see how, how tightly all of this stuff is tied together. Uh, so this, uh, if you can see my cursor, uh, that is actually our biggest solar rack. It's, it's six uh, photovoltaic panels, and then there's two more right up here. Uh, so we have we have eight panels in total, and that runs the whole system. And each one of these systems is independent. Uh, the high-voltage panels are the, the six panels together back there. Uh, this is a separate little electrical system there, a separate electrical system. It's all a par- they're parallel systems. Again, we're going to do another webinar to talk specifically about how these electrical systems work. Uh, what I'm showing you right now is how... How, how this works from a design perspective. Because everybody, if you scattered houses all over the place and then you try to ship electricity to those houses, you can't do that with DC electricity. It doesn't go down the wire. If everybody has their own refrigerator, you can't power that with renewable energy. Um, uh, but by tying all these systems together, so there's our high voltage solar rack. Uh, the well is actually right up off the upper right hand corner of the page, down the hill a bit. You can't see the hill very well uh, in this picture but it's a couple of hundred feet down the hill. That's a couple of hundred feet up to, this is the main kitchen, uh, this is the main house, this is the main uh, seed processing uh, uh, area. Uh, it's a barn where we uh, cut firewood, we uh, store seeds. Now, one thing that happened, uh, these satellite pictures are always a little bit dated. Uh, there's actually a big shop building right uh, back here behind the main buildings that was built after this picture was taken. And that's where we have all of our woodworking, metalworking equipment. Um, so the water that comes up from that well comes to the main building. Uh, we have a need in our climate to cool buildings off in the summertime. It can get uh, quite hot and quite humid. Air conditioning is one of the biggest uh, biggest uses of energy, particularly in the summertime in hot, humid climates in the United States. Uh, what we're setting up is where the water from this well comes up only a couple hundred feet. It comes through the house. So it can uh, we run it through a pipe rack uh, in the house so it can absorb heat. And then the fields where that irrigation water is growing, this is where our seed crops are. Uh, This is where we earn our living, right here in these fields. You notice it's only a couple of hundred feet. Uh, There's another field off to the right. There's actually another field back down that way, all of them within uh, several hundred feet uh, of our main community structures. Uh, We basically get free air conditioning. We can pump the solar water up uh, that's being used uh, for irrigation, chills the house, goes out to the field. At the same time, we can be grinding grain. The grain was grown in these fields. So we can transport it uh, by hand to this building where it can be ground, cooked with solar cookers. Uh, These things uh, in the back are solar cookers. You saw, uh, could barely see some of those in the last picture actually behind the main kitchen building. Uh, But in any case, uh, so that one high voltage rack has wires that go to that building and that building and that building and and a shop building back there. The amazing thing about all this DC electrical equipment is that it works really well uh, with a system that's all tied together like this. with AC systems, if you overload them, uh, the motors melt, the system shuts down, uh, conventional off-grid systems that use DC power uh, uh, don't work. Uh, they don't work. Uh, AC motors have to have perfect voltage, DC motors tolerate crazy voltage swings, and they're all fine. So the system we put together is ideally suited for a village level uh, cooperative uh, setup. And that's what renewable energy is works well with. And you know I've had this discussion with a lot of people and in this age where we like to think of ourselves as being tolerant of of just tolerant in general, you know we we're working to overcome sexism and racism and to tolerate people with different uh sexual preferences and that's all fine and good but people want to sort of transpose that back onto the laws of physics and renewable energy. I could this line over and over again. Well, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And you know I don't want to be too presumptuous or sound too arrogant, but no actually there's not a lot of different ways to do this. Uh, There are ways that renewable energy will work. There are ways that it does not work. Uh, I will challenge anybody to find a system that works more efficiently than what we have here. There are uh, three quarters of humanity. Three quarters of humanity, that's a lot of people, are living on less than $5 a day. Uh, If we have any hope of providing those people around the world who are living on less than $5 a day with renewable energy, we have to get past this addictive uh, approach to energy that we've been taking. What we've been trying to do at Living Energy Farm, and I think we're, we're going in the right direction at least, is building a, a system that can support people who don't have a tremendous amount of money and resources. Interestingly, a lot of the work we've done, of course, is to keep ourselves warm in the winter. And when you go to, to more tropical climates, uh, more equatorial climates, you don't have to do that. Uh, so, in some ways, this gets a whole lot simpler in warmer climates. And in fact, I think that's where we're going next. We've been trying to export our model uh, to uh, around the United States, uh, but we have what I call the fried chicken problem, uh, that you can provide healthy homegrown food and healthy homegrown vegetables, and that's the healthiest diet a person can eat. And if what they want is fried chicken and pizza, uh, they're not interested in the homegrown food. Well, the same is true with energy. What we have at Living Energy Farm, I can take a hot shower 24 seven, I can surf the net, I can drink, uh, you know, like I said, cold lemonade, cold beer, my build, my house stays warm in the wintertime and it does it automatically. Those blowers just run. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to shovel firewood. Uh, it stays cool in the summer. Solar powered air conditioning, that uh, runs for free basically, just for the cost of laying in the pipe in the house, which is pretty cheap. Uh, but when I could try to offer this to other Americans, they say, well, Where's my big screen TV? It's like, well, you can't have a big screen TV. Well, can I run my tumble dryer at midnight? No, you can't. You should put your clothes on a clothesline. Uh, so basically, we're trading off addiction and privilege for uh, for the next generation. Uh, we're cannibalizing the next generation in order to hold on to uh, our addictions and our privilege in the current context. And of course, the corporations that are making money off of this, uh, you know, they're the ones who are are uh, helping support that. Um, Helping support our addictions. Uh, I want to talk for a few minutes about how our under understanding understanding of energy got so messed up uh, because it's deeply embedded in the physical sciences and in the social sciences. Uh, just a really upside-down view of, of, of energy. I highly recommend a book uh, published back in the 1970s, I believe, uh, by Richard Wilkinson called Poverty and Progress. Uh, fantastic book. He was a British economist. He's elderly by now. I don't know if he's still alive. I communicated with him many years ago. Uh, In any case, uh, what this book uh, outlines is a history of uh, the development of technology, of technological change uh, in energy and food, all of these issues, but specifically how the technologies themselves changed. Uh, What we think, uh, the myth that we have created, because we want to think of ourselves as being smart. We want to think of ourselves as being uh, the products of tremendous uh, you know, decades and centuries of progress. Uh, this this thing of progress, of course, is racial component uh, to that progress, too. Uh, white people like to think of themselves as being the pinnacle of, of, you know, brilliant, this brilliant industrial progress that has transformed the world. The reality is that technological change has always historically been uh, a, a response to depletion. Another interesting author you can look at Uh, Mark Nathan Cohen uh, has looked at the history of human health. Uh, The peak of human health globally was about 30,000 years ago. Uh, Hunter-gatherers before the rise of civilization were pretty happy and pretty healthy. But what happened is they started running out of, uh, you you can only support a limited density of um, a limited population on uh, a given area of land. So they started farming, and, of course, uh, the growth of empires, Uh, What's fascinating about this picture I have on my screen now, uh, that uh, device that you see on the left is the first known steam engine. Now, you might think, wow, steam engine, that must date to the early Industrial Revolution. Well, no, it doesn't actually. It dates to about AD 63. Uh, We're talking uh, Roman Empire. Uh, They built steam engines and they didn't need them. They didn't use them because it didn't fit uh, within their economy. The one on the right is the first, uh, some drawings from some of the original steam engines. Uh, that actually started to be used in the 1600s in Europe. What happened with steam power in particular, um, as uh, populations became more and more dense, as civilizations grew bigger, and empires fought with each other, uh, firewood is much, much more accessible uh, than is coal. Uh, Europe, uh, in particular, became deforested uh, by the 1600s. They ran out of firewood, so they started burning coal to keep their homes warm, they ran out of coal at the surface. Uh, they started digging coal out of pits, open pits. Those pits started getting deeper. They became mines. The mines started to flood. They brought in rag and chain pumps. So they'd have uh, several horses walking in a circle, uh, driving this chain mechanism with these uh, rags being pulled up a pipe by a chain up through a pipe, going down into this well to suck the water out of the well so they could steep, uh, keep digging coal. Well, the wells got deeper and deeper and digger, deeper, and these rag and chain pumps weren't working anymore, steam engines were invented uh, in Roman times. They were invented over and over and over again. And it was in the mid-1600s in Europe when those rag and chain pumps failed that somebody finally said, hey, that's steam stuff. Let's see if we can make that work. And they started building steam-powered devices at the top at the wellhead uh, to pump water out of the mines because they'd used up all the firewood. They used up all the coal they could find on the beaches. They used up all the coal they could find on top of the ground, they used up all the shallow coal, and they were digging coal that was too deep in the ground to get it out of the ground by any other means. And that's the reason that transition to coal began. And the standards of living that we think of industrialism as improving our standard of living, that took another 300 years. Uh, The lowest points for standard living for human groups anywhere were in the early industrial revolution. Uh, The first labor laws Uh, In England, were to protect children under 12 years old from not working more than 84 hours a week. Uh, These people were starving and struggling and they turned to machines uh, to try to save them from that. So technology has always been in a race with depletion. If you look at how we clothe ourselves, one of the big points that Richard Wilkinson makes is that with each one of these steps, the more and more sophisticated technology, um, the complexity, the overhead, if you want to call it that, gets bigger and bigger. Uh, so, you know, hunter-gatherers clothed themselves with animal furs and animal skins. Now, of course, in the modern context, animal uh, furs are a whole different issue. But for hunter-gatherers, that what that's what made sense. They could produce high-quality garments without a tremendous amount of work. that worked fantastically well. As populations grew more dense, they started harvesting wool from sheep. Uh, the technology got a little bit more complex, the amount of labor that you had to put into it. Uh, got even more, became more labor intensive, more machinery intensive. Uh, Populations grew even more. They started to switch uh, from uh, wool to uh, cotton and flax. With each one of these steps, the quality of the material, the quality of the lifestyle goes down. The quality of the material produced goes down. The amount of labor goes up. The technological overhead goes up. Uh, It's a response to depletion. This is the dark side of technology, the side that we don't want to think about. Now this internet technology that we're using now, people all over the world, perhaps, are watching me, uh, that, we think of that, wow, that transformed the world. But when you think about what's happened was that industrial production, because we have depleted the easily available natural resources, if you work in the construction trade, you know, we can't even make plywood anymore because we've cut down all the old trees, what we call vernier grade uh, trees, and now they're making it all out of chipboard. It's a more complex process. Computers themselves are a response to the complexity of industrial production. Um, technology does not simply march for, march forward. It marches forward or it responds to depletion historically. Uh, these days, it responds to profit. You remember that comment I made about refrigerators getting less efficient? Well, that's profit. Uh, nowadays, I mean, what we define as food is based on what can be put in a box, refined and stored, uh, shelf stable, and sold profitably. Those, unfortunately, are most, mostly healthy, uh, unhealthy, unaddict- uh, addictive <clears throat> foods. So technology moves forward in a, in a lot of complicated ways. When we do the webinar talking about batteries, uh, we're going to talk a lot about profit because the batteries we use at, at Living Energy Farm uh, are nickel iron batteries, and those, they're fantastic batteries. They're the best batteries ever made, as far as I can tell, but they're not profitable. Uh, some of the best machines are not profitable. We've run into this as well, uh, working at Living Energy Farm uh, with uh, farm grown fuel. We're trying to uh, use, uh, trying to figure out what we can grow on the farm to power a small engine uh, to run the farm, because right now we're actually still using some gasoline, not a bunch, because we have economically we still have to support ourselves. Um, what we're realizing is that the old engines, uh, uh, pre-World War II engines in particular, uh, were in, in a lot of ways better engines. They were heavier, they had more metal in them, and they turned more slowly. The RPM in the engines were around 1,000, 1,200 RPMs. And what the people making these engines realized was that they could make them spin faster so they could uh, get more horsepower with less material. So they can make an engine you know, with a third as much metal and still make the profit, but that engine would spin three times as fast and therefore wear out three times as fast. So profit uh, is having a big influence on technological development. Depletion is having a big influence on technological development, and has been the guiding force of technology, technological change historically. And now politics, our desire to feel morally uh, uh, okay as wealthy consumers in the wealthy world is having a huge impact on our understanding of of, of technology. Um, None of these factors trump the laws of physics. Uh, The laws of physics are what they are. Uh, So designing energy systems that work well, uh, none of our our, uh, self-imposed silliness uh, can change any of that. Um, I show this slide when I'm talking about energy to people in the United States, uh, because when the Europeans came to the United States, uh, they conquered the Native Americans. In fact, that's what we fought our Revolutionary War for. Uh, The British wanted to maintain the treaties with the Native Americans, and the, the colonists didn't. That was really the primary reason we fought a Revolutionary War, uh, for those of you who know American history. But in any case, the Europeans conquered this whole continent and and thought of it as a continent that was wide open to to use, to exploitation. Um, What people don't realize was that the same factors of depletion-driven technological change, uh, they were delayed a couple of centuries uh, in uh, the New World, so-called, in North America, but the same process came into play. What you're looking at is a picture uh, from the 1800s. This is an old, old black and white photo, photo of a steam-powered log hauler. And you look at, it's, it's a freight engine uh, pulling logs uh, on, and you can see it's piles of logs, 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 going back right off the back of the picture. The reality is that Europe was deforested uh, in the mid 1600s, and that's when they shifted to coal, In the United States, coal, uh, wood, firewood, was used to melt iron. It was used to power the steam engines. It's being used to power this steam engine all the way up through the 1800s. And by the mid-1800s, the entire continent was deforested, except for the most remote uh, swamps and mountaintops. Uh, And that's when the price of coal uh, began. uh, The price of firewood just kept going up and up and up. And particularly after the Civil War, there was a, a, a big transition towards coal because we used up all the firewood. Uh, so even when you conquer a continent, you're still facing uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, still facing uh, the the realities of ecological the ecological limits of the planet we live on. Unfortunately, uh, our politics have become grossly disconnected from these ecological limits. What's happening now is that um, well, I was involved in a campaign to bring re- uh, returnable bottles uh, back to, uh, to Virginia in the United States. The way we were defeated was by the bottling industry realizing that they couldn't defeat us head-on. They had to use a, a, a roundabout tactic. And the bottling industry is uh, the people who make plastic bottles. And the way they did it was by promoting plastics recycling. Plastics recycling is a net environmental loss. Uh, Plastic is so light and so fluffy that when you've got a diesel truck, a big truck full of plastic bottles, you have a truck full of air. There's nothing in the truck but a tiny little bit of plastic, and that plastic is now a mixed product. There's all these different kinds of plastic. There's more environmental destruction done from trying to recycle plastic than from simply throwing it in the trash, but the bottling industry needed to purge the moral uh, weight of their product, and they did that with recycling. and it was successful. The environmental groups jumped on board, so now all of these environmentalists are uh, recycling their plastic. It's doing more harm than good. What's happened with uh, with plant products in the United States, this is a, a log processing operation in the state of Virginia, in the United States. Now remember, I just told you, Europe ran out of trees in the 1600s. The United States burned all, up all its trees by the mid 1800s, but the power companies in the United States, our local power company, is getting tax credit. They're getting public subsidy to take these pine trees. These are pine trees you're looking at, grind them up and burn them to uh, to make steam, to make electricity. Completely, absolutely idiotic if you know anything about the history of energy. But our politicians don't, and the, the desire for palliative solutions has so overtaken our policymaking processes and our just basic common sense that we're making a lot of stupid decisions. I see a lot of people now, they get uh, the fast food places are uh, packaging their food in Uh, little paper containers, and people are uh, getting their food in the grocery store in paper bags, somehow we've got this idea that if it comes from an organic source, that somehow that makes it more benign. In fact, it makes it less benign or equally as destructive. Uh, It's clear cuts on a massive scale that support uh, these chipping operations. This is a chipping operation you see here. So they bring in these huge piles of trees, that big crane uh, pulls them off the log trucks, throws them in this big circular pile, and then there's a massive grinder, it throws the uh, the trees into that grinder, and then those chips can then be used to uh, be burned to make fuel. They're used to glue they're glued back together to make uh, the modern version uh, version of a plywood. It's called chipboard or OSB oriented strand board. So this is a, a homogenization of of trees into chips that can be used for anything. Uh, 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 David Pimentel, a few other scientists have done work to try to figure out if you take the entire photosynthetic product of of the United States. In other words, every leaf on every tree uh, in the United States, uh, every soybean, every kernel of corn, every kernel of wheat, and everything, other words, everything that grows in a single year in the United States, if you could somehow collect all of that and burn it in a single year, uh, the energy output would be 25% less than the amount of energy that we're actually using for that year and we wouldn't have any food to eat at all. Um, The amount of energy that we're using is grossly out of scale with what can be provided by renewable sources. Um, Again, the real solutions are not all that difficult um, if we're reforming ourselves in communities. By the way, our political process is also spiraling spiraling out of control in the United States, funded by wealthy corporations that are selling us all these products. If we become more economically self-sufficient we will become more empowered, uh, and that is the real root of democracy. Karl uh, Wittfogel, a Marxist that dates back 100 years, pointed out that the early uh, riverbank civilizations um, that grew up—you uh, know, Indus River, Yellow River, uh, Tigris and Euphrates—were highly despotic because there was a, a ruling class that had control over the waterworks. Democracy and economic centralization are fundamentally incompatible. So to save our democracy, to to preserve or help democracy grow on a global scale is absolutely dependent on economic localization and economic uh, self-sufficiency at a local level. Well, not coincidentally, uh, our ecological situation, centralized energy, uh, you know, that's a historical artifact based on uh, steam boilers, based on uh, this whole centralized industrial process we built up. Uh, There are not a lot of different ways to do it. It is not a feel-good process. The laws of physics are what they are. Renewable energy works on a village level. It does not work on a major centralized industrial level. Uh, We don't really have a choice. When you look 300 years out into the future, our uh, children and our children's children are going to be living in self-sufficient villages. The only question is whether or not, uh, what, what happens between now and then. We could gracefully scale down We could build a a sustainable economy within the existing one. We could build a democratic society within the existing one. Uh, We can live within the existing supply of renewable energy on a per capita level. I'm telling you, my house is toasty warm, and it's within the per capita supply of renewable energy. It was built at a fairly modest cost. Uh, We can do this, but it involves a fundamental restructuring of our lifestyles. And that, of course, is the hard part. And that's what people don't want to hear I've given the speech many times and I'll keep giving the speech as long as I, as long as I'm breathing. Uh, we, we don't really have any choice. The laws of physics are going to do to us uh, what they will, whether we like it or not. Um, and just, this is a picture of a party I went to many years ago in a community. Uh, these people are having a lot of fun, obviously. Just at a very basic level, uh, we are social beings. Uh, this isolation that we've imposed on ourselves uh, in recent years uh, is uh, artificial. Uh, it, it, it's not fulfilling, uh, and we, we, uh, the corporations have created a lot of, of products to try to uh, sell us uh, things that fulfill us uh, instead of uh, uh, instead of real social connections. Uh, all of our human needs are more effectively met uh, in uh, cooperative organizations in communities. But the reality reality of the modern world is that uh, uh, privileged, uh, wealthy, powerful people live in isolated households. Uh, They live in any city that they choose. And all over the world, uh, lower income people, farmers, uh, traditional peoples live in villages. Uh, So to say that villages uh, are a solution to our economic problems, are a solution to our ecological problems, are a solution to our political problems—it is antithetical to the entire uh, uh, system of privilege, our own internal system of privilege. Uh, what I've noticed in trying to take the living energy farm model, the living energy model around the world, uh, is that that so many people—they're so well-intentioned about wanting to help people who have less than they do—but these ingrained uh, uh, privilege is just ingrained. We assume that we're smarter. Uh, And that these poor brown people around the world, well, they're not as wealthy as we are because they're not as smart as we are. It's just an assumption. It's like, wait a minute. uh, Is that really true? Um, All of our solutions lie in restructuring our society and our economy around uh, self-sufficient, economically self-sufficient, ecologically sustainable, democratically uh, uh, supporting of democracy, whatever the phrase is there, uh, at a community level. And for me, there's also a spiritual level to this. Um, I was raised a Christian. I reject reject that Christianity, which puts the deity deity up in the heavens. And in fact, the original Christianity, if you know anything about uh, the Roman period, uh, that original Christianity uh, was, in fact, a popular movement. Uh, It was later taken over by the Romans. The, The Bible was written 300 years after the original Christian movement. The original Christian movement was a popular movement. Uh, and it was based in locally self-sufficient communities. I don't. Uh, I will call myself a pre-biblical pre-bib- a Christian if I want to call myself a Christian. Uh, mostly, I just believe uh, that the living world around us is fundamentally sacred. The trees are sacred. Uh, the animals are sacred. The soil is sacred. Uh, we do not have the right to destroy that. We do not have the right to take that away from our children. Uh, we do not have the right, even if you simply assume that there's no divine intervention, uh, it took. Uh, three billion years, that's billion with a B, to get from a single cell organism to a multi organism. Even if you simply assume that the world we're living in now was not uh, created by, um, with any kind of, of divine intervention, uh, it took billions of years to create it. So when we destroy a species now, and we are in the sixth great extinction, we are destroying species now as if an asteroid hit the planet, except that asteroid has a human face on it, uh, do we have the right to destroy 4 billion years of evolution? Do we have that right? If we have that right, does it make any sense? And why are we doing it? It's not human nature. It's a set of choices that we, we are making here and now, and we are fully empowered to make a different set of choices. We simply have to admit to ourselves that we're making those choices. We have to admit that we are addicted and invested uh, in things as they are and think about these sober ways to break those addictions. Uh, in ways that don't ignore the laws of physics. that don't sacrifice the laws of physics uh, and don't sacrifice science to politics. Uh, Certainly in the United States now, we have a political leadership that could care less about science. Uh, But uh, as a popular movement, we are not obligated to follow that kind of stupidity. Uh, We can do better than that. Um, So, So uh, we will do more webinars. I have laid out an outline. I don't know if that outline has been published, but in any case, uh, we're going to do webinars on uh, our high voltage DC electrical systems, our DC microgrid as we call it, how we use DC uh, electricity at Living Energy Farm. Uh, We're going to do webinars on our batteries because good batteries matter if you're trying to be locally energy self-sufficient. uh we're gonna do webinars on food, food production. Um uh we're gonna do webinars on how to grow food on trees. Uh we're gonna have lots of fun. Uh, there we go. Areib, are you still guys still there?
1: Hey, yes. uh um, yeah, I have a bunch of questions from the audience. And by the way, this um the presentation in PDF form will be downloadable. Um when we post the post the uh, we, uh, webinar replay on our website so look for that you'll get uh, the whole presentation from alex and uh, we'll also post the schedule as he was describing it so if you uh, if you guys didn't get that or you know if you have any any uh, doubts or questions you know you'll get all that in, in written form in black and white and we have some questions from from the audience. So, Alex, are you ready for questions? Are you? All um, right. All right. So let me start with uh, this is from Susanna, um, and she asks, "Do you think it's possible to take a typical existing home and uh, um, hyper-insulate it enough to be?" as energy efficient as a new straw bale or net zero type
2: home design? Well, there are two questions there. And the answer to one of those questions is yes, and the answer to the other question is no. The the building, uh, I don't know if you can see my webcam, but this wall right behind me, this is actually a straw bale house. uh, And it was the the first uh, straw bale house you saw in the presentation there. That house is actually an existing house with a straw bale shell wrapped around it. So part of the back of the house was new construction. This wall behind me is new construction. But the front part of the house, all I did was, I, built, I call it a dummy footing, but it's a non-low bearing footing because you can't put straw right on the ground, certainly not in this climate. So you get your straw up a little bit, and then you just lean straw bales against the wall. Uh, that's really cheap, easy. You bring your friends out. If you've got drinkers, buy them beer. If you don't got drinkers, buy them soda pop. And say, here's a trial. smear up the stucco. They stack the straw up and smear the stucco. It's really easy. The thing that gets you is the windows. Good windows are expensive, and those are an industrial product, hard to make on your own. So the answer to the first question is can you take an ordinary home and with at a reasonable cost insulate it really well? The answer is mostly yes. The insulation is pretty easy. The windows are a bit more expensive. Uh, the second part of the question, though, of, of making it really efficient in the bigger picture no, because private homes, if you've got one family living in this house, even if it's fairly cheap to insulate it, it's still a single-family house in the wrong context. And I know that's hard for people to hear because everybody, millions and millions of people who are out there in the world have their own private homes and they don't want to give them up, but that's the laws of physics. I'm sorry. Uh, that model of breaking us up on a, into our own private little houses is a historical anomaly. You can make the house a lot more efficient, but the context is still wrong. You're still driving to work. You still don't have a local economy that that house is part of. So the house itself, this particular house, a bunch of people live in it, so it's a cooperative house. And then there's actually 140 fruit trees around it. There's a beautiful garden, and the people in the house are at least capable of, whether or not they choose to, uh, building local economic relationships. So the, the Living Energy Farm is a much better context than this house, but in any case, Uh, easy to super insulate, harder to change context, is the answer to that question.
1: Awesome. That was a
2: great answer.
1: And Alicia, uh, she has a couple of questions. She
2: says, sounds sounds all well
1: and good, but how do you compete with big money?
2: That's tough. Um, And that's the question. I mean, the the way you compete with big money, if you're a a mainstream organization, is you lie. um, I am... Uh hopefully what, what we're trying to do, I mean, I've, I've, uh, as an organizer, I've, I've created a number of successful campaigns on a modest scale. As an organizer, you need to find, figure out what people want and how to how to give that to them, um, how to bring that to them. Uh, the problem, of course, that with, with these bigger environmental issues is that people want the fried chicken and the pizza. They want the single family homes that they can flick the switch and turn on the air conditioner. Uh, so what we're doing is we're trying to go to people who want something different. We're taking our project to Latin America, maybe Africa, maybe India. Our first project is, is uh, going to be in Nicaragua, it looks like, to people who don't have the kind of services. They don't have the fried chicken. So maybe if we can offer them a more, a better um, uh, product, they'll take it. Uh, you know, from an, in, in any of the, anybody who's done any organizing has learned the same lesson and can tell you the same story it's really hard to motivate people. You can be as, as righteous as you want to be, as right as you want to be uh, doesn't motivate people. Uh, what motivates people is anger and response and response to immediate situations. So, uh, and of course, you know, the big money side of it is that the money people can afford to put out all these, this false information about climate change. And that's, you know, big, loud voices. And my voice is small and quiet and you can barely hear me when I talk uh, about more truthful things. Um, so, you know, that's not an easy question to answer. You know, uh, it's an ongoing question that as a, if, if we're an environmental movement, it's an ongoing question. How do we organize? Who do we organize? For me, it's a real heartbreak that I haven't been able to be more successful at organizing people in the United States. There's all these smart people making stupid decisions. And I'm like, come on, you can do better than that. Um, but they're, they're sold out. They're sold out by the, by the grid tie, uh, more beer solution, you know, pour more beer and that's good. It'll make it all go away. Uh, so for me personally, we're gonna try to go to people who have less privilege in other parts of the world and see if that works. I don't know, uh, it's a tough uh, a tough conundrum. Right,
1: so here's another question. Is the human race in self-destruction mode?
2: Huh. Uh, mm, uh, there's gonna be a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, there is a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, But I, if you want to, I'm not trying to encourage you to buy my book, you can buy it if you want to, but my interest is in, you know, of that big question of what is the human race doing. I believe that there is a cultural evolutionary process, not, and people, when you say evolution, they think biological evolution. No, cultural evolution is a whole different thing, works by a whole different set of rules, and uh, we have made a set of choices to build these big empires, Uh, and these empires have traded off power for sustainability. They've trained it off the broad vision for the narrow vision. Uh, And it's a process of of how you treat children, how you raise children. What happens in industrial uh, highly stratified cultures is we raise children in a manner that they are disempowered throughout their childhood. Uh, And it teaches them to not think critically about about the society they live in. And it makes them great team players. In the United States in particular, we've taken this to the nth degree, Uh, you can elect a tree stump president in the United States if you got enough money. Uh, And that's kind of what we do, as people with money elect our politicians. uh, Because we've been taught to be team players, we have this narrow vision. All of that said, it's a specific cultural form. It is a specific kind of cultural evolution that we are engaging in right now. And it is very destructive, but we have other options. Uh, You look at male supremacy, the, the way men dominate women all over the world, that's universal now. I mean, it's gotten better in some places. You could say, oh, well, that's human nature. That's just the way it is. But in fact, if you look at the longer history, and if you look at there are many cultures around the world where men don't dominate women, and throughout most of our hunter-gatherer history, men men probably did not dominate women, certainly not the way they do now. So that's not innate. Well, empire building is not innate either. It's a set of choices. It's a cultural form. It's a pattern of cultural evolution we have got caught in. Uh, And it is very destructive, but we have other choices. Uh, If all we have to do, it's really quite easy, we don't have to overthrow those people at the top. Just ignore them. Pretend they're not there. All we got to do is build local economies, and we will empower ourselves. And 10, 20 years down the road, all those people will say, hey, what are you doing? And they'll come to try to take over our leadership at that point. But that's way far off. And what matters is is how we sustain ourselves. That's what drives human cultural evolution forward. There's The sun gods, this were the Natchez and, and the uh, American Indians. Mo- mostly the American Indians were not as crazy as the Europeans, but some of them were trying to be crazy. The Natchez gods, they were called sun gods. Every morning, they would get up in the morning, and they would, uh, uh, the the sun, the main sun, that was their their king, basically, would get up, and he would do a ritual to make the sun come up, and then he would speak to all the people around him and say, hey, see, the sun come up. I did that. I, I did that. I made the sun come up, and if I didn't do that, we would all die in the darkness. Well, that's what all our politicians and preachers and all these people are doing these days, is telling us, hey, I made the economy work. Hey, I make the world work. Follow me. We're the ones making the economy work. Uh, we, there's nothing stopping us from building a sustainable democratic society right now if we just make the choices, if we just respect our own leadership instead of giving all our money and leadership to Amazon and Exxon and all these crazy corporations and politicians. It's here. It's not out there. God is right here. Not up there. Get it.
1: All right. Uh, that's a great answer. Okay. Here is uh, one. Here's a question from Kara and she says, any experienced uh, tip on cooperative living?
2: I'm sorry ask the question again.
1: Uh, okay, any any experienced tips on cooperative living?
2: Uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, uh, it went by earlier, that website ic.org, uh, that's, at least in the United States, a fantastic clearinghouse for a lot of information about uh, communities. Uh, that organization is run by the fellowship for intentional community a fantastic organization now they bring together a lot of different kinds of groups and uh you know those groups do all kinds of things some of which i probably wouldn't approve of i mean there's religious groups and non-religious groups and uh, groups that focus on sustainability and groups that don't i mean it's just a lot of different it's, it's a broad organization but there are books and and all sorts of online information there for me personally the big struggle uh is, for me, creating, uh, it's a yin-yang. It's a contradiction. Uh, Creating community is an act of leadership. Sustaining community is an act of cooperation. And that's a tremendous struggle. A lot of the communities I deal with, a lot of the uh, liberals and certainly the the more left organizers in the United States are are anti-leader. And it's such a struggle uh, because, you know, when you go buy something from Amazon, God help you, you're giving, you're supporting their leadership every time you buy something from them. But then when I try to organize something at a community level, yeah, you're too much a leader, whatever. I mean, that balance of, of leadership and cooperation is really the crux of it. Uh, but, you know, that said, you know, if you want to do it, pull together your vision. Don't assume people agree. Don't be afraid to have a leadership or leadership core up front. Uh, be aware that there will be struggles around that leadership. Uh, that leadership will probably need to shift its role over time. Um, You know, uh, and it's ongoing. These same if you read anthropology about traditional village levels, they had the same struggles. It's not that they were always peaceful and harmonious. They had a big kinship system. So when people got mad at each other, you always had some uncle somewhere else you could go visit. Uh but it's it goes to the core of this whole issue we're talking about, about you know, sort of blinding ourselves to be team players versus, you know, keeping this broad vision. If you're gonna keep that broad vision, then everybody has their opinion and it makes it harder to organize people. And that's the contradiction you're working with.
1: Okay. So Alicia has has another question. Any thoughts about uh, communication with engineers engineers without borders to help develop uh, nations towards sustainability?
2: If we had a local group, I tried to communicate with a little bit. I don't know much about that organization in the broader sense. Uh, If you have some connection there or feel like they could. Help us with this process, uh, please. Uh, we are trying to reach out to one organization after another, uh, and I could do a whole one-hour-long webinar about what that's been like, but um, it hasn't. I mean, the glass is always half full, half, half empty. We've had some successes and some not successes, but our model is different. I'll warn you that that that, uh, that centralized energy model is, in in the kind of privilege to do the various assumptions that go along with that, are hard to get around. I have found. So we've tried contacting various organizations that work with, trying to bring improved lighting and energy systems to the non-industrial world. I haven't worked much with, much with Engineers Without Borders. If there's anybody out there who has personal contacts that might be able to help us with this, because it's really crazy. Just to give you one example, EarthSpark is an organization that's working in Haiti, and Haiti is, of course, people there. There's a lot of really poor people there. But, and what we're doing is fantastic for that kind of environment, because we can do it one little piece at a time. We can put in. A, a very modest lighting system that's very durable. The problem with traditional lighting systems is they use shitty batteries and they crap out uh, in a few years and you're back back to square one. We use stuff that lasts for decades, but we can do the lighting system. We could come back and do another layer and another layer and over time for very modest amounts of money. But Earthspark, just to take one organization, they go into Haiti, they put up this multi-acre solar field, big industrial lithium battery sets and computerized controller equipment. Um, Uh, running wires down the street. Again, a centralized power model, computerized uh, meters on the little houses, power wires going in the houses. This is the same thing they're doing in Puerto Rico. They call it microgrids, but it's all based on this nutty centralized power model. Nobody seems to be able to get out of that, and I haven't been able to communicate effectively with organizations or people to try to say, hey, actually, these 100-year-old batteries, as soon as you say nickel iron, the engineers go, yeah, whatever. Uh, they think you're crazy because nobody believes that 100-year-old technology is better than a modern technology. Nickel-irons got pushed off the market because they're big. Who cares if the battery that's lighting up your house is big? If it's in your cell phone, here's a cell phone. You want that battery to be small. The battery that makes the lights come on, who cares if it's big? But profit and, and technology, like I said, evolves toward profit. It doesn't, like, balance considerations. So I've tried to talk to the engineers and it hasn't worked. If you can help, please help us. Uh, livingenergyfarm.org. Our email is on that site. You can get a hold of us. Anybody out there who can help us figure out how to spread this model. We have a model that can shut down the global power grid. And I don't mean shut it down in a hostile sense. I mean, provide a similar level of service. Now, it's a different lifestyle. But I, like I said, I get to go home, take a hot shower anytime I want. Uh, we can provide a similar level of service at a much cheaper cost. But it's a different model. And people are not used to thinking that way. And it hasn't worked for us so far to communicate that, all that effectively. So if you can help us communicate it, please, we're all ears.
1: All right. So here's a question from Jeremy. Um, he asks, how can I build um, a earth, earthship type house uh, <laughs> on a low, low income?
2: Um, well, earthships in particular. Uh, so the first rule, I mean, okay, I told you, context, conservation, then renewable energy. But another way to look at that is environmental solutions are always local. So earthships were developed in uh, the, de- the arid parts of the United States out west. Uh, now an earthship, by yourself, forget it. It needs to be, again, wrong context. But I'm just assuming that you're gonna put it in a better context. It depends on where you are. Uh, you don't wanna build an earthship in Virginia. Where I am, an earthship would be a disaster. It would turn green. The whole thing would be a mold pit. Uh, you'd walk in and you'd just start choking. You couldn't breathe. Um, so you want to look at what works in your area. That said, um, if you want to build, to just broaden the question slightly, to environmentally sustainable housing, you can, uh, there's a lot of methods out there. Uh, you can go out in the forest, stack up some rocks. You might want to buy or scavenge some foam to get some below grade insulation. You can weave some saplings together. You want a thick wall if you're in a cold climate. You want above ground if you're in a humid climate. If you're in Arizona, you can dig it in like they do with the earthships, because you don't have the humidity that we have. Uh, you can use saplings, put some organic material in it. I've built with uh, leaves, straw, bamboo, crumpled up newspaper, whatever you have. If you're in a cold climate, you need a thick wall. The interior, you can stucco with dirt or, you know, people come up with all kinds of dirt mixtures, interior plaster. Exterior, you want something a little more moisture proof. We use a, an exterior stucco. With a moisture-proofing admix in it, pretty cheap and not free. Um, so there's ways to do this cheap, but you gotta think about what's available where you are and what works where you are. Don't assume that something that works in Arizona is gonna work in Florida, is gonna work in Maine, is gonna work in Saudi Arabia. I mean, local climate matters, both in terms of resource availability, in terms of humidity, in terms of you know, moisture above ground, below ground, a lot of things to consider. You have to think about what works where you are right so um,
1: we have a bunch of compliments uh, Nick says, Nick is uh, a Navy seal he says fantastic class uh, looking forward for the for the whole session uh, Alicia says thank you thank you um, there's a long question from it's not a question it's a comment from Jeremy so Alexis I'm I'm um, all in with the efforts to build local generative economies however corporate, Uh, interventions is not far off. Every time corporate uh, discovery is a resource that they want in a local community, they bring um, all their power to undermine local integrity for the reason of, reason a critical um, element of local community developing in the okay it's a long uh, i think he he is just commenting on some of his experiences um
2: well i mean don't i mean it, what he's saying is true that the corporations have tremendous power if, if we start taking local power they might start to fight with us but don't let the don't let the demon in your head defeat you before you fight that battle it's like yeah okay we're going to have to struggle that's that's part of it But go ahead and start doing it. And when we get to that struggle, we're going to win some, we're going to lose some, and we got to try to keep it going forward. But, yes, if we have a global community empowerment movement, there will be some political fireworks. But a lot of people, like, think about the fireworks and say, oh, I can't do that. I don't want to face the fireworks. We're going to face fireworks whether you like it or not. Um, So go ahead and start doing it, and we'll struggle through it. You know, don't let them defeat you before you even start trying.
1: Right. Okay, so we are, um, I don't see any other questions. So we're going to wrap up this session. So thanks everybody for being here. Uh, So here is uh, one more comment. Bart says, thank you. You gave me a lot of, a lot to think about and work with. All right, so I hope everybody benefited from this presentation. And Alexis, uh, thank you very much for this presentation. Uh, Again, we'll meet next week uh, with the second session in your series and um hope everybody will join us again so thanks uh, everybody and we right now um, Alexis we we will say goodbye and um, I will go to the next presentation that we have which is the highlights from uh, our our um, we'll show little clips from every presentation so if everybody you're all welcome to hang around and um, if not you know We'll just say good night. Alexis, any, any other thoughts uh, before we end here?
2: Uh, looking forward to next week. See you then. All right. Thank you, everybody, and have a
1: great one. Bye-bye. And I will start the uh, presentation with uh, webinar highlights of the week. So bye-bye, everybody.